welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First-time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. If you're watching on Counterpunch Plus, welcome. Thank you so much for your continued support. It means the world to us. If you're listening to the audio podcast, well then. Maybe you should consider getting yourself a subscription to Counterpunch Plus. That is our subscriber section. That's what keeps the lights on. That's our way of uh, paying the bills. So if you think it's important to support Counterpunch, support independent media, support the kind of content that you really know and believe in and want to see, please get that subscription. You can do it right on the website. Do whatever you need to do. Give it as a gift. Give it as a gift to yourself. Um, And speaking of gifts to yourself, my guest today, what a gift to all of us. Uh, I'm sorry. It's all right. It's all right. We'll keep it together here. Eileen Jones is with me. Eileen is awesome. If you don't know her, she is on Twitter at Eileen15Jones. More importantly, she's a film critic with Jacobin. She has been a lecturer at UC Berkeley, probably other places. We'll find out in a minute. Uh, she is the host of the Film Suck podcast, which you absolutely should support on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Film Suck. Eileen Jones, welcome to Counter punch thank you i'm honored to be here oh come on now it's not such an honor but i guess it's a little bit of an honor and i am come on counter punch if oh. that's not an honorable name i don't know well what i'm i'm gonna do a little dance for <laughs> that comment yes i agree with you uh question for you mm. tell me about your background and specifically mm-hmm. how eileen jones came to be a professional film talker it was not intended. <laughs> my my goal was initially uh, to be a filmmaker. Washed out of that after a few years. Made a few indie films. I will not name them because I don't want anyone to see them. Washed out of that. Went back to academia. Found I hated academia. <laughs> I mean, I did my teaching, but I couldn't write that way. So in desperation, while I was toiling away at Chapman University, which now has a rep as, a, as mainly a film production school, but I was in film studies. I was so miserable that I started writing for a shocking podcast called Exiled Magazine. And it just allowed you to just let it rip. And that was exactly what I needed. So that's why I started writing. And then from there, I made the jump to Jacobin. But I had never had any intention of becoming a podcaster. (laughs) I I always think I I don't know what I think about anything until I write it. So how was I going to just jabber on? So that's an amazing thing to me. So if someone hadn't asked me, Evgenia Kovda asked me, my first podcasting partner, um, and said, you know, I'll handle all the tech and I'll do all that and you just talk, I I would never have dared. it, It takes a certain amount of guts to do this, I think. Guts and complete lack of regard for other people's time and <laughs> interest in what people think. Various other things. But yes, absolutely. Um, it's really interesting. Chapman University, my goodness. Yeah. It's like 10 minutes from where I grew up in Orange County, California, the seat oh, of reactionary politics in California. It is. And that was part of what was driving me mad there. Oh, oh it's I can really imagine you, you must have enjoyed that. Yikes. Yeah, that was not pleasant. <laughs> All right. Well. <laughs> That moves me on to question two for you, mm. Eileen. And uh, I, I numbered them, but they only go to three. So that's how this is going to go. <laughs> you're a kid. You're a child. I don't uh-huh. know. Maybe you're seven. Maybe you're nine. Uh-huh. Maybe you're 13. Uh-huh. There's some film that made an impact on you that changed the way that uh-huh. you saw movies, your relation to movies, the world of film and so forth. What movie mm-hmm. was it and why did it impact you in that way? That's tough. There's so many, but I'll just pick, I'll pick one, and it's a it's a pretty obvious one. 
it's Wizard of Oz, but it's the the things that what stuck with me most, unlike what I would think most kids of my generation would have said, because we all watched it all every year it was on <laughs> television. Everyone watched it all the time. Most people would pick the Oz Technicolor portion. What what I was fixated on was the Kansas portions, the black and white, because they're so depression era looking and so annihilating and so depressing that I couldn't get them out of my head. And so and so I, I that was where I first encountered this insane emotional power of film that it could hook you, compel you to make you want to watch it, but you'd be almost almost overwhelmed by emotion. Um, to the point that I've seen it so many times, I, I literally cannot watch it. I tried teaching it at Berkeley a few years ago, and I realized I was tearing up at the opening music. And I thought, before I turn around, I have to not cry. So I have to now stop this film. <laughs> and I did, and I've never, I've never watched another frame because I know it by heart anyway, and it's too powerful. It's too powerful. And I assume from there you immediately made the jump to Krzysztof Koslowski and the Polish New Wave and their use of color. Right? <laughs> immediately. The natural progression. It actually, uh, I actually, you know, I think that's part of why I got obsessed with American film, which is not a popular thing, especially when I was in film studies in academia. It was so passe to care anything about American filmmaking. It's because there's a kind of stealth power to it, even in in fantasies or comedies or also other genre kind of films that I've, I've always been fixated on. So I think that's how kind of how it started. Is there, I mean, on a, as a tangent off of that comment, is there anything uniquely American about American films, as we might say about other countries and, and, and films that, you know, might have a certain thematic element or aesthetic sensibility or something American film somehow seems to defy any kind of, uh, I don't know, categorization or thematic element? Oh, God, I don't agree. I mean, an example for me would be my favorite filmmakers who are the Coen brothers. And the idea of the Coen brothers making a feature film set in, I don't know, <laughs> Russia or <laughs> China or France or anywhere else is almost impossible. And they admit it. They're like, we're for some reason, we seem to be <laughs> locked in to American speech. We were obviously raised here and everything else, but we're locked into American speech patterns and, and types of people and things that, the, you know, that they, they structure their whole films, many of them anyway, starting from landscape, then to cultural affects, like literally opening shots of both what Blood Simple and um, what No Country for Old Men. You go from the harshness and craziness of the landscape to you know, aspects of city or at least cultural life of humanity to characters. And the implication is one is arising out of the other and you get these crazy ass <laughs> people and behaviors and language patterns and everything else out of all of those relationships that are American. And maybe, maybe I'm overly particular, but every time I go anywhere else, I'm hyper-conscious suddenly of like, God, I'm such an American, and I don't even like that. I don't even enjoy that. But as soon as I'm somewhere else, I'm like, damn, and everyone around me knows I am. They can peg me from a mile and a half away. It makes a lot of sense what you're saying, and I wasn't even really thinking about it in that in, in that sense, although, yes, of course, mm. in terms of subject matter and style and, and, and all of that. But mm. the Coens are somewhat unique in the sense that they're American filmmakers that sort of have uh, uh, carte blanche to make whatever kind of films they want. That's sure. not your typical, that's not the typical experience of American filmmaking mm. or, or the studio system or any of the things that generally we think of as contemporary American film. And so I'm trying to think of like, 
what would be, I mean, is it superhero movies? Are superhero movies now the, the quintessential American film? I mean, at one time it was Westerns and mm -hmm. since then it's, it's, it's evolved from there. What is an American film? Is it about I America? Maybe I'm too simple-minded about this. I just can't help but feel like, or maybe I'm too academic, you know, language itself has a certain equality of constructing realities, um, as do landscapes, as do, you know, just physical environments. So, I mean, you can't, you can't pick up most, I don't know, I, I won't say all, because you're right, there's a lot of generic stuff in, in, in both the related to genre film and not that you could say you could shoot that anywhere. And often they do. They go off to, you know, somewhere in Eastern Europe that's cheap and they shoot some film and they try to pass it off as this is New York or California or some crazy thing. But I, I just, I, maybe it's just an overemphasis of mine, but it certainly seems to me that most Hollywood films of the studio era made by people who didn't have any control over the product were making films that were so American that's actually almost sickening <laughs> and that it had such an impact on other people in the world. You're always reading about actors who are like, Oh my God, I decided I had to go to America because I actually believed in the film version of America that got sold all over the place, which is some sort of bait twisted based on the American experience. I think other people would be very conscious of Americanness from, at least in my experience, whenever I, like I said, whenever I go anywhere else, they're just like, who? <laughs> Yeah, so you're an American. I'm just looking at you and you're an American. It's like um, people from California who think they don't speak with an accent. Absolutely. The only, the only people in the world who happen to have no regional a accent whatsoever. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Know, I know. So I tend to feel like we're so insanely marked by this culture, unless we're very well-traveled and very sophisticated indeed and, and get out and about more and do things to somehow erase those particularities. I'm not sure how one avoids them. The attitudes are baked in in my. But maybe I'm, maybe I'm, I'm being naive. You you educate me if that's not the case. No, I don't no, think no, you I have think to you're... be intending to be making an American film about America to have it be very American. That's my yeah. Opinion. I think of I, I I could think of filmmaker that I you know filmmakers mm. that you wouldn't necessarily think of as like quintessentially American filmmakers. But if you really think about it, they are. I mean, David Lynch would be a good example of that. Thing about David Lynch good, I was about to name him. Yes, you know, because that's not Perfect. one that I immediately thought of. But then when I like interrogated that for a moment, I was like, well, actually, Blue oh Velvet is about as American as it it's gets. About as American. <laughs> as <laughs> so, yes, that's a fair point. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. So here's uh -huh. the next question then. Your your podcast, I uh -huh. it's called Film Suck. So tell me, why do so many films suck? Oh, it's such a burning question and more suckage all the damn time. It just for years, I've held out hope that we're going to pull ourselves out of this morass. And periodically, a filmmaker will do some amazing thing. But it just seems to be this, the life is just getting strangled out of it. And it's partly just economics. You know, there's been a kind of collapse of the separation of film and other media. You know, now you can watch on giant TVs and it doesn't seem different enough to drive people to the theaters in many, many cases, even though it's such a different experience. Um, so, so many things have happened, but, you know, even before, many years before when I started uh, uh, being a film critic, it was already a kind of writing on the wall. There's a sickness just building that seems to be leeching the life out of filmmaking. And I'm, I'm still not sure what it is. It, it's, I still, I still can't even account for it. And I was kind of there for like one of the last gasps of life in American film was the the independent film movement that really gets off the ground in the eighties in a serious way. Of course there had been independent films before, but you get this phenomena suddenly. 
And it was really exciting for a very, very few years. And it was amazing how quickly it just got beyond co-opted. I mean, they still try to call it independent film and give away independent spirit awards. And it's just a joke. I mean, it's just a joke. It's all these stars and famous directors and stuff, and they're collecting awards. And if you know anyone who actually makes an independent film that's different, they might get nominated. I know someone who got nominated for an independent spirit, and she just said, oh, it was hilarious. We were we were there, and but it was like we were just spectators at what had nothing to do with us. It's a total insider thing. So it seems like everything that can get started as exciting <laughs> gets cut off at the knees early on. And 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 what's poisonous is the longer this goes, the longer you have a really anemic cinema, the more people get used to the anemic cinema and come to like it. I mean, this is a thing that happens with like, if you read George Orwell with like food during World War One, and it never recovers because horrible tinned like milk that isn't real milk becomes more popular than milk. So people are drinking this concocted mass of sugar and whitener and they like it better. And it's a kind of version of that where people have been kind of persuaded that that films are exciting and good that are so appallingly bad that you feel like you're getting dizzy and disassociated. I mean, this happens to me all the time now. I'll do a review of something that's manifestly terrible and I will get hate mail like you would not believe from people saying it's a masterpiece. And I'm just like, ah, ah, <laughs> really shocking. So I think that's part of the superhero phenomenon as well. People take those damn things so seriously and parse them so finely and treat them like they're just the masterpieces of their time. And you can't persuade any. It's like a religion. You can't persuade anyone differently. Maybe it's just people don't want to think of the films of their lifetime as not profound and great. I don't know what it is. You know, your your example of the independent film movement, independent mm -hmm. film industry of the 80s and 90s, I think mm -hmm. is an interesting example because what we're really talking about here is co-optation, right? Yeah. I, something, something that is uh, subversive, that is a movement of mm -hmm. resistance in a sense yes. against Supposed the system. Supposed to be an alternative, exactly. Right, that is ultimately co-opted by the <laughs> system. But that is something that is almost like inherent to capitalism. It it's is, It's like the, the Che Guevara t-shirt or something, you know <laughs> what I mean? So, mm -hmm. I mean, tell me that it's something uh, different from where we've seen it in a thousand other examples, because hasn't that happened repeatedly uh -huh. in film history? Sure. I mean, sure. That's for sure. I mean, obviously, we'll, and we'll get to it in some of the film examples. You know, everything is going to get sucked into the maw of capitalism and get warped and dirtied and tarnished and ruined. Sure. But I still say, and you know, and again, this is this is very much me, and is, a lot of people are going to disagree with this because you know Hollywood films in their heyday were the most capitalist products, arguably, that were ever made, and in fact, you know, there were a number of revolutionary filmmakers who said exactly that: it's capitalism, like it's in its quintessence, Hollywood films, and so and yet. So many of them. There's tons of junk. There's always tons of junk. But And they were cranking out so many of them that you could just say, well, the odds are some of them are going to be good. But I'd say a higher percentage of them were were exciting and weird and, and interesting. And, you know, I always want to write a book about how, how many drugs everyone was on at the time, you know, when drugs were highly available in the, like the 20s, 30s, 40s, before they get really legislated. Because you start, you get such crazy, amazing 
spectacles and and you get the feeling that a lot of very very talented people who all got concentrated in one area and partied like mad and had insane work schedules just kind of let loose of their logical minds and created these amazing id-like films that still are compelling i would say i would say for that reason we don't have anything like that now. There's still a version, you know, we've got a version of, but we don't have the kind of live in all the creative types are there. They come there every day. They all know each other. <laughs> the expert in 17th century furniture is there with the, the hair person who's some sort of mad genius and the, you know, and they all know each other and it's this insane mask forced collaboration on some Culver city lot. We don't, we, it was just an accident of history that we wound up making films that way for a while. But it can really make for some exciting, crazed cinema. And if you find filmmaking tame now, I think it's partly for that reason. There's not the insane concentration. Sure, they're probably all doing drugs like mad. <laughs> but I don't think there's the concentration of insanely creative talent forced to be together and forced to produce at such an insane rate. That's my theory of why Hollywood cinema stays exciting. Someday I'll write and that just, book, a drug and, book. And someday I'll have you on to promote it. Uh, there's no <laughs> doubt. I hope so. <laughs> but um, I want to just, I want to ask you, uh, just before we get to uh, your top five or five of your most important films for leftists to see, mm. which is my required topic for any film people that come on here. Um, <laughs> but I just want to, I just want to ask you mm. about this universe building that Hollywood does now, right? Mm -hmm. Where everything has to be part of a universe and it's not just the superheroes, right? It's this sort of continuity, characters, cross-pollination, cross-marketing, mm -hmm. all mm -hmm. of these things sort of have to come together all the time. And it makes for, it, it, it makes for obviously a, a lack of uh, uh, interesting movies, but more mm -hmm. importantly, I feel like it somehow, it debases what movies are. Oh, that's an interesting term. <laughs> Debases, huh? How does how does or it do devalue, that? Or, or maybe I should say it devalues. Mm -hmm. It devalues what individual movies are supposed to be. Like oh, I a see. Movie doesn't, there doesn't always have to be a sequel. There doesn't always have to be continuity among characters across different mm -hmm. films or things like that, right? This, this tendency for Hollywood to want these... Uh, sort of multifaceted products mm. that can be sold in pieces and simultaneously right. as packages. This is a big problem, I think, and it goes far beyond just the superheroes. Yeah, and I and I would agree. I mean, it's not that there wasn't always a huge what marketing aspect that was driving older films, but it's it's been so turbocharged since what the seventies, eighties, when the new the new business model kind of arose on the ashes of old the old Hollywood studio system, um, that now the thinking of how to make a movie is driven by that. So you can already see, you're right, how thinking, how, how can we have a universe that's built out sufficiently that we can get X number of films, some amazing number of films and all that additional product, you can see how just thinking of that at the very beginning is going to curtail your creativity. You're already hugely limiting the type of thing you're going to think of anyway, <laughs> because especially some weird ass one-off that is the golden experience in cinema for me is what you don't want, right? That's exactly what you don't want. There's no way to market that. There's no way to have sequels. There's no way to build a franchise, et cetera, et cetera. So you're right. I, th I, I would agree. 
it strongly limits from the time a screenwriter sits down to the, their Mac um, what's going to come out. Well, and you know, I'm not I'm not trying to pick on superhero movies at all because, like, I was thinking of a couple of examples. You know, like I think uh, Ant Man was one. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think, maybe Black Panther. There were several that I saw that I was like, okay, you know, that was an entertaining movie. That's enough. Mm -hmm. Leave it there. But then there has to be a second, and then a third, mm -hmm. and then you bring in other characters from other films that will come three years down mm -hmm. the road, and then pretty soon it's like now, oh well, now we're part of a universe again. You know, mm -hmm. so it's like you can't escape it. Oh, no. Even when they even when they do make one of those weird little nuggets where they have a, mm -hmm. a weird casting decision and get a mm -hmm. quirky actor to do a superhero role, no, mm -hmm. can't have that. No, I think that's very true. It just it just rules the thinking now, and but but that's what's weird to say though because it's not that the money making profit motive wasn't always ruling the thinking. It was. It's just something got turned up a whole other set of gears to the point that it's so driven by that. I think, and I think you used to have an expectation that there would be different, again, they were, they were making way more movies than we're making now. Though, if you add in all the content, shall we say, that's being, that's, that shows up mainly on, you know, on various, you know, channels, they're not, they weren't making more, but at any rate, they, they seem to, they seem to have tiers of things. So there would be a bunch of things that were meant to be in some sort of semi-serial form, at least with many, many sequels. But then there were th some things that were planned to be one-offs, whether they were prestige films or they were an adaptation of a novel or they were just some sort of odd, none such, there's no way that this is a standalone. You could have multiple levels. At, each studio is making 500 films a year. That's going to give you a lot of leeway to think we can get all the audiences because we'll have something for everybody. Now it seems like the the a loss of a belief in the audience. If you build it, they will come. I don't think that that's there. I, I think or it's we, a it's a data driven mark micro targeting of demographics. Right. It's so niche. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's so targeted that, and there still seems to be a vaster belief in more people are gonna like this kind of thing that we're doing. I mean, th a thing I'm harping on lately that that it seems related to this somehow is the new the new insane plottiness that that one way to hook people into say binge viewing experiences or just approving of what they're seeing is you plot to the point that there's so much going on it's like a mad race of plotting with endless cliff you know mayor of east town is a good recent example where it's just like it's a constant reveal that makes you go oh i never would have thought and then it's on to the next episode and there but there's going to be 10 of those per episode and it's seven episodes and you're just going to be driven to watch and watch and watch. I think that happens a lot. I was just watching a, the, the new Pixar movie, Luca. It is overplotted to the point that it's just, you can't believe the madness. But if you're used to Pixar, you, you look back and you're like, no, they've always done this. This is their whole story obsession. You overstuff with plot event to the point that it's crazy, even though that always roughly goes the same. You know, it's always going to have a chase scene. It's always going to, there's always going to be a mad inventive chase scene and a tearjerker kind of finale. Um, even though you have wild other premises, but it, Luca really, I think topped them all for starting from an insane premise. And then you just keep adding characters and situations and plot lines until it's wild for me anyway. So I think that's become an, Part of it too is just like driving the plot to the point that it that this is what now hooks people, and then it leads to this is what people expect. 
So then the, the next thing comes along and you need to really insanely plot that. Does that make sense? To be, yeah, of course. Absolutely. And there's something to be said for previous uh, decades and previous generations. There was a separation. Mm. The viewing the viewing experience was a discrete experience. You went to the movie theater, you went to the mm -hmm. drive-in or whatever it was, you watched your movie and then you left. Mm -hmm. But now there really is very little separation between the movie that you're yeah. watching on your phone and then you look up and there's the other movie that's on your TV. <laughs> and then exactly. there's the thing that your kid is watching in the other room, uh -huh, you know, yeah. but then you kind of go to, you know what I mean? So there is obviously a media saturation in all mm -hmm. corners and all walks yeah. of life this is no you know no revelation for anybody mm -hmm. but the impact that it has on film and sort of changing the very uh nature of the way that we view films i think is mm -hmm. probably an under uh analyzed issue well, i definitely agree and i it, and it does make you feel like from mul in multiple ways film as we once knew it or recognized it isn't going to last <laughs> it just seems like it's being steadily chipped away at and eradicated out of existence, which maybe it just has to be. Maybe maybe there's just no way to keep it going, especially as you say, when the clear goal, I think it's now clear to quite everyone, it used to be in the boardrooms of Netflix, you know, literally in the minutes and stuff, that the goal is just constant, constant screens playing 24 seven, always multiples, if you can get them, that is the goal. And, and everyone's being trained up into this. Well, now everyone knows that's the goal. And people can cooperate with it to an amazing degree i don't understand it i'm i'm but i'm a fogey i'm old so for me it's just it's just madness the idea that you could be watching many things simultaneously all day long it's never quiet this is the podcasting phenomena too and here we are talking but i have a i do my own podcast and i have a hard time with podcasts because your head is full of language all the time like there are people who listen to like 10 12 20 whatever crazy number of podcasts it's just always running. And I think that's a new thing that people can handle. <laughs> For it's me, a, it's crazy it's, making. It's absolutely adorable to me that you said 10, 20 podcasts. Like it was the wildest number <laughs> you could imagine. And it's not, it's like, right? 50 would probably be more. I don't even know what the numbers are now. Hundreds. But, oh, dear God. Um, how do you uh, have hours in the day to listen to hundreds of podcasts? I, well, like, how? No, who knows? Who knows? But you have enough time in the day to listen to Film Suck and to Counterpunch Radio. And <laughs> so you have bad. enough time. You have enough time <laughs> to enjoy this very short break if you're listening. <sighs> on the audio podcast enjoy the music if you're watching the video we will be right back
we're back here chatting with Eileen Jones. Follow her on Twitter at Eileen15Jones. Uh, you can, of course, read her columns in Jacobin and the podcast Film Suck is on Patreon. Make sure you go and subscribe to that and support Eileen's work. So, Eileen, there's probably a million other things we could talk about with regard mm. to movies, but in the time that we have left, let's run down your list. Now, this I didn't ask you to rank them exactly. I basically mm. just asked you for your top five films and specifically your top five films that you recommend leftists see. Sort of like uh, if you're a lefty, you really at some point need to make sure that you see these movies. I, of course, have a list that I could never whittle down to five, but I make the unreasonable demand of my guests. <laughs> That is you this time. So, Eileen, <laughs> start us off. What is your first must-see film for leftists? Well, my first is one of the usual lists on the list. If you look up lists online, for and I'm, this is definitely the top five for lefties to see, is Battle of Algiers. So you'll see that I'm only going to pick that one that's absolutely on all the lists to represent all the usual suspects. Battle of Algiers I, I pick because... It's such a, it stays so powerful. I used to teach it every year, almost at Berkeley, and it, it almost never failed to, to be amazingly gripping, and that is hard, and that doesn't often happen with a 1966 film. Um, it's, of course, do I need, shall I do the whole song and dance about it, or should we go through the list? Well, you could give me part of the song and dance, but yes. Part no, of the song absolutely. and dance, well. No, we got to talk, we got, let's talk through, let's talk through the movie. Imagine mm. there are people who have never seen it, don't know mm. what you're talking about. We have 20-year-olds listening. No clue okay. what these old people are talking about. <laughs> right, Tell exactly. us about it. <laughs> Battle of Algiers. It's a film made by an Italian filmmaker. His name is um, Gilo Pontecorvo. He was a communist. He had been part of the Italian resistance, a leading member um, 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 during World War II. And he um, embraced the principles of Italian neorealism, which is a filmmaking style that was very anti-fascist, but also anti-Hollywood, a kind of semi-documentary style of filmmaking. He gets, he gets uh, an impulse to basically make a film set in Algeria about the Algerian revolution, which by the time he's making the film had succeeded in overthrowing French rule. That, that happened in 62. The film comes out in 66. And he wants to focus on the, you know, the capital city of Algiers and the specific battle that was taking place, I think it's 50, 1954 to 57, over that tiny amount of territory held by, held by the French in a brutal occupation. So at any rate, it's, it's, it's a film that very powerfully sets out to reenact with the tremendous <laughs> cooperation of, the, uh, of Algerian people who were there and involved, sometimes playing themselves. In le some of the leading people are playing it. Um, so like Sadi Yasef um, is, is a producer on the film, and he was one of the leading figures in the Algerian National Liberation Front, which was kind of leading the fight to try to take control, some sort of control back um, from the French of Algiers. So he's essentially playing himself in the film. Um, so there's there's a tremendous collaboration going on between this Italian filmmaker who's a, who's a communist and subscribes to certain filmmaking principles with people th that he wants to honor. He wants to, he's explicitly said it's an homage to not just the Al Algerian people, but to all people who are fighting for their independence against tremendous odds. And he did say there's going to be, you know, pain inflicted on both sides, but only one side is justified. Okay. And by that, he means it's the occupied side. It's an anti-colonial film. So don't believe you'll go on a lot of sites that will try to claim 
that Battle of Algiers is great because it's very, you know, even Steven faults on both sides. That that's what's great about the film, that it's totally even handed and he's not taking a side, Pontecorvo. That's insane. <laughs> Let me just tell you right now, and it's very common to read this. It's completely wrong. He is entirely on the side of Algerian independence. And it was such a great film that it literally became a tutorial in guerrilla warfare for other groups seeking freedom from various sorts of oppression, usually colonial oppression. So the IRA, Irish Republican Army, the PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization, and the Black Panthers in America are among the groups that studied this film for how do you possibly prevail against this immense colonizing monolith where the, that has the concentration of power against you. So I could go on and on about the, the greatness and how moving the film is and how exciting the film is and it had how politically relevant it stayed. They literally showed it in, at the Pentagon in 2003, supposedly as a way to understand how you could lose, um, you know, something like the war on Iraq um, the invasion of Iraq, and you could lose the hearts and minds if you use if you go to extremes. I don't think that's what they were studying it for at all. Uh, that's that's again one of the kind of bogus things that gets put out on various sites. Of course, it seems to be, it, it's pretty clear it was a counterinsurgency. Counterinsurgency study Absolutely. is what was yeah. going on. How do we defeat these people? <laughs> these insurgents was what was being studied. So there's all this bullshit. I'm just warning you. That's I don't know if it's centrists and right wingers or who it is that's putting this out there. It's nonsense. Don't believe it. Uh, so many things to talk about with regard to that film. Mm. Tell me, talk, give me, give me two minutes on the opening sequence and the music. Oh God. <laughs> Ennio Morricone, one of the greatest of all um, composers does such an amazing score. There's a percussive score that accompanies a bombing run that's comes by three women um, in the middle of, of the film. It's a retaliation bombing for something that the French, the French blow up a, an, an apartment building and kill, you know, massive numbers of people. And there's a percussive number that you'll remember the rest of your life. It's so exciting. But the opening is so haunting. It's got this kind of militant stuff. If, if I'm remembering this right, this kind of stomping militants um, as you're wading into this, you're kind of in the, in the middle of the action, you're wading into the moment where the last of the leading members of, of you know, this um, a, a National Liberation Front are holed up in the wall, their last hiding place. And French paratroop um, soldiers are all storming it. They've and they're with them is their their pitiful tiny um, uh, uh, informant, Algerian informant, who's clearly been tortured. He, in fact, you see him tortured in the first scene. Um, he's been tortured into giving them this information, and he's and he's now going to have to be brought there so that everyone will basically he'll he'll be recognized. They'll know. Who, who, who did this betraying act. It is so haunting and horrible. And by the way, the whole treatment of the film about torture is absolutely up to the minute. It's absolutely today. It's one of the shocking things about the film that you're watching this film that's taking on the issue of torture and dealing with it in ways that are extremely pertinent to what goes on right now in the United States. Um, well, there's probably more to say about that opening scene. Am I forgetting something? No, I think you got it. Um, but, but just because since we're since we're going to mm. be uh, economical with time, I'm just going to okay. rapid fire a couple of other ones before we move on here. Um, I never really 
thought too much about this other than the obvious, but you mentioned Italian neorealism. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. Rossellini is obviously an influence, of course. He's the touchstone for all of those filmmakers. Mm -hmm. You want to talk a little bit about Rome, Open City, or some of those films and how they impacted uh, Battle of Algiers? Because I think it's a, it's a direct line to that film. There is, yes. It's he's you know spe specifically Rossellini's work that um, influenced uh, Pontecorvo the most. You know, my favorite quote from um, from Rossellini is, um, "If I accidentally create a beautiful shot, I cut it out." And that's how much of a rebellion you've got against you know the the Italian commercial cinema under the fascists, which was very slick and polished escapist film. They were called white telephone films because some rich person was always picking up a white telephone in an elegant white white decorated apartment. Um, that it was it was escapist filmmaking to keep people from paying any attention to what was going on outside. It was a very bread and circuses kind of. Um, um, you know, policy on the part of the fascist government to keep people from getting too uh, <laughs> aware of the horror show of their lives. So there's an absolute rejection, and this begins with Rossellini's famous film, Rome Open City, that comes out immediately after the war, in which the whole thing that's the most memorable, even though some of the scenes are staged in a very typical studio filmmaking set, that's not what anyone remembers about Rome Open City. What you remember is they go out into the streets in the middle of the bombed out rubble filled streets. And that's the policy. From now on, we're turning the camera on what it's what it, anyone who looked out into the street could see. And it's almost always going to involve the oppressed and the underclass and, the, and the, those lives that never were getting represented under the fascists. And again, they're also resisting. Most of these guys are communists. Um, so they're they're far left filmmakers as a rule, and they're in full out rebellion also against most you know, the Hollywood ten escapist tendency as well. So it's location filmmaking, natural light, often non-professional actors, not always, sometimes there's a mixture, um, but a lot of the time, because you're trying to get away from all of that kind of pol too polished, too professional, too slick, fantasy escapist nonsense that they now, of course, regarded as hugely dangerous ideological brainwashing. Um, that's part of what got everyone into the mess of fascist takeover in the first place. No one looking at the harsh reality of the world. So, you know, there's vastly more to say about Italian neorealism. It's a hugely important art movement. It's the first of a number of art movements that are going to, you know, go washing through Europe and the world, the French New Wave being the most famous of them. But Italian neorealism is going to go on influencing movement after movement after movement forever up to now periodically you'll still see someone saying you know what we need to do we need to get back to italian neorealist filmmaking practices so when pontecorvo makes his film it's location shooting tons of natural light ton and almost entirely non-professional cast the only exception is the guy playing the um um the, the one who's heading up the french side colonel Mathieu. Um, the French paratrooper um, officer who's running that whole vicious campaign. Um, and there's a reason for that. He, he wants to do something quite daring. He wants to make this the man of superb control who's going to be very impressive in his own right, but he also doesn't want the, the audiences to know, recognize him, so he's a stage actor. And what's fascinating is if you show the movie to anyone, and I did it every year in my class, I'd say, which one's the professional actor? And they had no idea who any of these people were, and they'd pick him out every time. 
And I'd be like, how do you know? How do you know? And it's because he has such superb control over his face, voice, and body that that's what distinguishes the actor. They train themselves, ironically, even method actors, out of the common human uh, you know, um, way of behaving, which is you're not always acting on emotional point in the scene. And actors are. They've learned how to control themselves to that extent. But he wanted that control. And that's, you know, they often point to the Colonel Matthew character as part of this so-called even-handedness of Battle of Algiers. Because he's so articulate and, and kind of erudite and impressive, people say, but they allow him to make such a good case. Well, it's simply because Ponacorvo doesn't want to be a dope. He, wa he wants to show you there are going to be formidable spokespeople for the wrong side of, of any fight. And Colonel Matthew is that figure. Last question on this one before we move on. Um, something you, you mentioned Battle of Algiers as an anti-colonial film. Of course mm -hmm. it is. And of course that's the appropriate term. But the question uh -huh. really is, there's something about the fact that Italians have a unique experience with colonialism in Africa Mm -hmm. that makes the Algiers question and Algeria so fascinating from the French mm -hmm. perspective, right? That the Italian experience of Mussolini mm -hmm. in Africa mm -hmm. and the brutality of their colonial adventures in Abyssinia, mm -hmm. Ethiopia, et cetera, and what that did in the 1930s, that mm -hmm. then 25 years later, as the French are reckoning with their colonial legacy right. in Africa, all of a sudden the Italians are pointing the camera. And yeah, you know, yeah, and I'm sure that it was part of the reason, you know, only part though, why France banned the movie for a whole a whole number of years. It was a long time before you could see the movie in France. And yes, the anger it must have been very embittering. But on the other hand, they could simply have said he's a communist, and therefore he's not a nationalist. He's a citizen of the world, shall we say? Um, so you know. I think that would kind of explain why he, he's not exactly speaking for all of Italy in making this film, but I'm sure the French had a hard time with that. I'm sure. All right. So much more we could talk about. If you no, haven't seen endless. Battle of Algiers, please go mm. see that immediately. Stop listening to us. Just go see the movie. <laughs> yeah, go watch it. Um, it's also available on a really nice Blu-ray on Criterion these mm. days. So that's, mm -hmm. that's fun. All right. Eileen, next, your next absolute must-see film for all leftists. Well, now I, I hope, anyway, I think I'm departing from the usual suspects list, and I'm moving on to um, a film that's, a, you know, a genre film is very, very well known. But if you haven't seen it, and certainly if you haven't seen it in terms of kind of leftist politics, it's really important to see Night of the Living Dead, the first of the zombie films made by George Romero. And why I really want to stress that is it's a film that was made in such an outsider way by just a bunch of, of, of guys led by Romero who are working in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, had their own little, little company making commercials and, you know, industrial films. They're nowhere. They managed to scrape up. I think it's a little over a hundred thousand dollars to make this film. So they are, are nowhere. And they literally Romero literally can get the credit single handed for reconceiving a subgenre of the horror film, which is the zombie film. I and mean, few people even realize that before Night of the Living Dead, the zombie film was a whole different animal. It was there was there was a B movie genre that went a whole other way. And he reconceived it in a way that no one thinks of the zombie film in any way other than the, in the terms Romero set down, essentially. Um, so there's that plus an attitude that he's got that's so bleakly critical, that's so apocalyptic about 
American culture. He's already at 68, but he's already looking at the 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 all the revolutionary principles that were being, you know, brooded about and people at so many organizers and um so many people hitting the streets, so many protesters and he was already seeing its utter failure and its utter hopelessness. And he it's a very very bleak film basically saying America kind of stick a fork in it, America's done. So where where do we sit today with the zombie genre and what does that trajectory tell us good question <laughs> i think it's where is it now i think it's kind of tapered off it hit a huge peak several a number of years ago with walking dead and there were remakes of old zombie films and there was a kind of i'm trying to remember what year when it seemed like it couldn't get any bigger but it's a number of years ago now and it seems to have tapered off, perhaps in that way, when it's just exhausting. Every genre exhausts itself eventually until someone finds another way to reinvent. So, you know, even within the, the Romero-influenced years, which are ever since Romero, you know, 68, um, you see departures like the comic zombie film. Like if you've ever seen Peter Jackson's early film, Brain Dead, for example, before he started making Lord of the Rings and stuff. Um, he was making hilarious gore fests in New Zealand, and that's one of them. So, so there have been lots of permutations kind of in the backwash of Romero. But the terms, as far as I know, have never changed. Maybe I'm wrong. Can you think of an example that's not, that's not in Romero terms? I can't. Not really, not no. anymore. I, I, you know, it's an interesting question why in the last few years the zombie mm -hmm. genre seems to have receded, and receded. obviously there is that natural sort of ebb and flow. But mm -hmm. I have to say, I think that there is something to say, something to be said for the rise of the far right and far right politics that has mm -hmm. brought zombies into reality a little too close. Um, you know, January sixth insurrection looks like a bunch of fucking zombies to me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like when you. Mm -hmm. When I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine who was really into The Walking Dead, and he stopped mm -hmm. watching Walking Dead after mm -hmm. Trump got elected, he said that shit's too much for me now. You know, like he wow. couldn't, couldn't, couldn't think it through anymore because the apocalypse had come home, right? And so mm -hmm. I wonder if there's—it's not just a, a, an escapism, but there is some kind of a reflection in what we're going through. You know, IRL. You know, mm -hmm. in real life. Mm -hmm. And that could very well be, though that also suggests that some of what Romero hoped to accomplish never took, which is, I think is pretty clear. If you read a lot of what Romero said, mainly after the fact, after he made more Dawn of the Dead is the biggest hit of, of his um, zombie films, the second of the trilogy and the third is Day of the Dead. Um, he basically said the, the zombie is a blue collar monster and I'm on the zombies side. <laughs> But that's not how it plays for most people. Most people, of course, and of course you would acknowledge it's hard not to, to, to reflexively side with the, what's the dwindling numbers of humanity as they're getting overrun. But part of his apocalyptic take was humanity's got to give way. It's just, it's just a failed enterprise. <laughs> and he also was very left wing. So he also had a kind of sense of the zombie is also uh, is the more oppressed figure. And you can see it playing out as he moves through um, the first three films. By the time you get to Day of the Dead, it's pretty clear. The military's running the show, but science, you know, it's kind of like a hell collaboration of military science and government. 
And now what's being done to the zombies, even though they far outnumber, like there's very few humans left. The, the, there's medical experiments on the zombies. There's brutalizing. There's every kind of brutality. You start, you can see more clearly. And, and one of the, one of the zombies named Bub is, is starting to develop, um, you know, greater intelligence, greater understanding, greater capability. So he's a more and more poignant kind of Frankenstein's monster figure. You're starting to see more of the fact that Romero really sees the zombie as a, a kind of new species, but that's sort of identified in its suppressed way with the underclass, with the worker. And if you see a later film of his called Land of the Dead, he makes it explicit. The working class are the zombies now. They live in impoverished rings around the city center, especially a skyscraper. I forget the name of it. He gives it a name where all the rich people are holed up. Um, so he gets more and more explicit about that. But that hasn't really survived. Um, other other filmmakers haven't taken up that idea of like, actually, human beings need to be done. And why do they need to be done? Human beings have no capacity for solidarity. Human beings, it doesn't matter what, cannot unify. They can't communicate well. They can't cooperate. They can't, for the greater good, <laughs> agree on a plan and stick to it. They're always a greater danger to each other than the zombies are to them. And that's Night of the Living Dead. They, they they die far more because of their own infighting than because zombies get at them and kill them. Especially because, remember, they're slow zombies. You know, people kind of forget they got used to 28 Days Later and the Fast Zombie. Romero is, is emphasis is on these, the, the, there's a kind of pathetic shuffling zombie that's on its own is probably not going to be able to do much. It's the swarming of the zombie. Um, that's, that's the, that was the, the innovation. And now it's not Dracula coming for you. It's, it's unlimited numbers of the walking dead. So, but that didn't survive Romero, but you're right. Now we, we got to the point that we saw zombie world everywhere. <laughs> and I think you're right now that we, now we're just like, maybe we, in, in our imaginations, the world is overpopulated with zombies, whatever we mean by that. Well, and, and there's no and, room and for film zombies anymore. That's exactly that's exactly the thing, and it's uh, regardless of who you are and regardless of what the perspective is, the the opposition are the zombies, right? Because if you ask mm -hmm. these fascists, they'll say Antifa and all of the rest of these people they're zombies. Got to get mm -hmm. your shotgun and blow their heads off like Woody Harrelson yeah. in Zombieland or something. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So uh, the othering, right? The zombie as the other, the opposition, mm -hmm. right? And in this very polarized political climate, it certainly feels mm -hmm. like the need for for a sort of zombie escapism is kind of uh, not necessary anymore. Yeah, and maybe it's just too disturbing. You, you can't even really enjoy. <laughs> you can't get the subversive thrill of the zombie film if you feel like you're surrounded. Yeah, I think that's probably quite right. Certainly, every Thanksgiving is a zombie film for a lot of us. <laughs> right. All right, question number uh -huh. three, film number three. What do we got? Oh, now I'm blanking. What did I pick for three? I think it's Asphalt Jungle. I'm pretty sure. Yes, it is. Um, the Asphalt Jungle is, again, it's it's kind of standing for a lot of other films. It's standing for the genre of film noir. It's a 1950 film directed by John Huston. It's one of those um, heists that go completely wrong. It's fated to go all wrong. Um, there's a number of films like this, but like that, but this is the bleakest probably of them. And it's um, a part of a great American genre that's a, a very unique genre, and it's still amazing that it these were actual popular films made for 15, 20 years um, in the, in mainly in the post-World War II era through roughly the end of the fifties. They're crime melodramas usually, but they're almost always 
expressionistically shot, which means heavy on the shadow and low key lighting with really cruel slashes of of light kind of cutting through them in, in entrapping and enmeshing patterns. It's very much about, about a, a bad, cruel, brutal world. It's that's a rigged game and people thrashing around inside it, trying to get anywhere or have any decent experience or find love or find money or find anything and failing. They're almost always ending in, you know, it's always ends badly, almost always. So again, very unusually in every way that these came out of Hollywood. It's a bizarre, bizarre thing. Um, so they tend to, because they're, they're taking such a dark view and, and many of them explicitly, it's America. That's the dark view and consider the timing after world war two, there is more cheerleading and we're number one self-congratulatory attitudes that of course emerge in cinema about America than at any other time. It's, you know, we're now full superpower. We won the war. We're great. This is the best, you know, we're richer than anyone else. We're this, we're that. And you see it very much reflected in these big, colorful, consumerist oriented spectacles, you know, Rock Hudson and Doris Day. And there's all sorts of musicals and just a lot of rah, rah cinema. And then you've got this dark underside, (laughs) this underbelly kind of film. And they tend to very much be on the side of an underclass, often a criminal underclass. Sometimes it's just impoverished people struggling to get anywhere, but they tend very much to have that attitude in them. Um, uh, what can I say about Asphalt Jungle? Because this is the only one of, the, of the, my bunch that you haven't seen. Um, so I should describe it a little better. It, it, the members of this group, there's a heist group. And, and before, before I say that, I should just say there's a lot of location shooting, which had become very popular in um, Hollywood after World War II. So there's a lot of very raw street scenes that, were, that are, I think they're just out on the streets of LA, but it's black and white. And they're very grim and they're very bleak. Um, and then interiors are shot very expressionistically. So there's a whole feeling even before anything happens that this is all doomed to failure. It's very typical at, uh, mood for film noir. In uh, the members, among the members of the heist, you go up and down the class structure. There's a wealthy, apparently wealthy lawyer um, named Alonzo Emmerich, played by the great actor Louis Calhoun. He's, he's so supposedly bankrolling this, but it turns out he's absolutely desperate for money. So he's got a plan to betray all the others in the end. Once they get the, the jewels, he's going to betray them all in an idiotic scheme that can't, but it shows his desperation. It can't possibly work. And then you'll go, you sink all the way down in class to the character of Dix played by Sterling Hayden. Um, who's essentially muscle. He's a goon for criminal acts. He's the one who punches anyone out who needs punching, shoots anyone who's shooting. And he seems to be a completely numbed out person emotionally who loves no one, even though there's a very abject and pitiable young um, working class woman named Dahl who adores him, but he seems like puzzled by it. He doesn't have any emotions left. We find out basically that he's, you know, kind of frozen at a point of trauma, as we'd call it now anyway, um, as a child when his, his, his family lost their horse farm in Kentucky during the depression. So there's a kind of economic basis for especially his um, um, situation. He, they lose their farm. Clearly he gets thrown out onto the world too early, falls into crime and the rest warp. And you see the warping, but everyone is warped in this movie. It's a very great referendum on capitalism. Everyone in the movie, you see how living in this horrible, exploitative, brutal, evil world on both sides, whether you seem to be on the right side of the law or the wrong 
Everyone is warped out of shape. All the cops are brutes. The whole system is brutal. The criminals are much more um, sympathetic. But even they, they're not, they're not quote unquote nice people. They're not clean people. But there's a lot of sophistication in being able to look at them and see the potential that they had that is lost. You'll get glimpses in every one of them, even, even the worst of them, of what they might have been. The, these better qualities that could never have developed in such a such a world as we're seeing here. So, for example, the the lawyer Emmerich, who's a complete, he's going to betray them. He's a schemer. He's a hollow man living life as a lie. He's got a mistress played by young Marilyn Monroe before she's a full star, where she's she's been instructed to call him Uncle Lon. So they have an incestuous, you know, sex play thing going on it's 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 really grotesque um he's just a he's not a nice fellow but there's a one wonderful scene where he's sitting with his wife and she's deploring that he has to as a lawyer associate with criminal types and she just says i hate to think of you with those terrible people and of course he's one of them <laughs> um and he says they're not so different from us crime is just a left-handed form of human endeavor it's one of the famous lines in the film that has a lot of beautiful lines and so he has this moment of, of kind of rueful wisdom that makes you see he has qualities. They just have not survived as a role. There's just tiny glimpses of them, but mostly he's this awful, weaselly, big false front waste of a man. Dix is another example. You see in the end, he gets, he gets, they all come to a bad end, but he gets shot. He makes a desperate drive with Dahl to get to the Kentucky horse farm. He's now hallucinating. He's bleeding to death all the way. And he's, he's in his hallucinations, he thinks the family still owns the horse farm. So he's reverted to boyhood and is trying to, he's talking about this colt he raised. And he's like, he's just, he's a real good colt. I sure hope Pa doesn't want to sell this colt. He's he'll be going on and on about all the things that he cared about when he could still care about anything. And he finally dies. He just makes it onto this land that isn't his, falls into the beautiful grass and there are beautiful horses grazing all around him. And his face is upturned to the light and you see him looking peaceful. And for the first time you can see what he would have been or might have been if he hadn't been destroyed <laughs> um, and his family hadn't been destroyed by this horrific system. So it's, it's a tremendously moving and, and sophisticated example of film noir. There are a lot of cruder, like, you know, BC and Z budget um, films. There's a whole range of quality in film noir. I, th I find them almost all moving because there's such counter cinema <laughs> to what was the mainstream of the time. But this is an especially sophisticated one. And I, I think really good for the left to see because it's like, not only does it hold up solidarity among the criminals, among this underclass, the big thing is you're never supposed to rat out to the cops and you're never supposed to betray each other. So there's this principle of solidarity that's about the only principle that's repeatedly held up and not everyone can live up to it. But there's also that this, again, very sophisticated sense of no one's clean in this system. There's no way to stay clean. There's no way to stay unwarped. And by showing us this, it, it, it's a great reminder of we're not nearly as tolerant of each other on the left. I'm not saying anything surprising here. Everyone who's in the left knows this, suffers from it, jokes about it. But it's a really great film to watch to think about that aspect of it, how we're how unable we are to achieve solidarity ourselves because we're always so aware of, well, you're so warped and you have bad values. Well, we'll all, we're all warped. We're all struggling to have any good values on, as far as being, being on the left.
So that's my something spiel. About, <laughs> something about, I love it. I love it. I'm gonna, <laughs> I I have to see the movie. But something about yeah. contrasts really mm-hmm. strikes me when, when we're talking about film noir. You mentioned, of course, light, right? Light and dark, you know, light and shadow, et cetera, that, that aesthetic mm-hmm. contrast. There's also something about contrast with regard to setting, right? I mean, the most common setting in film noirs is Los Angeles. I mean, so many of them take place in Los Angeles, on the, on the streets of Los Angeles, and, et cetera. And yet they're dark. They're yes. gritty. They're not warm. They're mm-hmm. not full of sunshine in the way that you would think of them, right? So there's this sort of juxtaposition almost or, or uh, tension mm-hmm. that exists in them. Um, and another, so I wanted to get you to comment on mm-hmm. that uh, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, there's another movie that came out the year mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. Asphalt Jungle that is not uh, entirely film noir, but it's one I'm much more familiar with. And that's mm-hmm. The Naked City. The oh, Naked right. City, which is almost a police procedural mm-hmm. and almost a documentary and almost a film noir and not quite any of those uh but that was i think within 12 months of of the film that you just mentioned and i, I would also right. say is absolutely must see for us yes. yes i agree and it's and it's also very much rooted in the depression there's that whole the 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 murder victim is a young woman very attractive who has left her poor but decent you know parents breaking their hearts because she's desperate to get out of poverty poverty and you know she winds up being murdered and that's the catalyst for the whole thing but there's these heartbreaking scenes with her parents about depression time hard times and so they both understand what happened to their daughter but it's again that kind of sophisticated referendum these kind of mentions that locates what's happening in film noir you know in a timeline of of the horrors in America, uh, you know, the depression that as soon as we got to the forties and the war, everyone was like, "Never mind, everything's the economy's turbocharged again. That's all done. Film noir always remembers. There's so many film noir that are harking back to the depression and pointing it out and, and sort of as a, as a kind of a motive, a still motivating force because so many people in film noir are desperately trying to achieve money <laughs> they're, they're trying to get somewhere monetarily the femme fatale is always is always she's doing all sorts of heinous things she's she's always 10 steps ahead of you know the men in the film she's betraying everybody but it's always because she's trying to get herself somewhere and what she has to work with are her looks her sexuality and of course her superior usually her superior brain power on top of that so, you know, that figure as well is a, is a kind of, you know, there was a, you know, initially a very, a big feminist protest in the seventies against that aspect of film noir, but I always find it actually one of the more powerful aspects that, that in such a miserable, brutal world where women, you know, if they get jobs, they're going to be low paying exploitative jobs. If you want to get to the top, if you want to get a lot of money, if you want to get a tremendous amount of independence, you're for a lot of women, the, the, the grim fact is going to be, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to use your looks, use your sexuality, figure out a way to be canny and crafty to get it. And so that's, you know, even in asshole jungle, there's poor Marilyn Monroe playing a version of what she was actually doing in her life. I've always thought it's so like, Oh God, what was that like? She was literally having to offer herself sexually to get anywhere to, and she she talked pretty frankly about this early in her career, um, to executives, to producers, to directors, to, that's how she was getting ahead. That's how she was getting parts. That's what she had to offer. And it's, it's so 
heartrending. <laughs> There's a scene in the film, in fact, where where a cop she's gone and hidden in the in the bedroom because she knows they're going to come and question her about the the lawyer's alibi, and and the and a cop comes to the door and says, "You're going to have to come out and talk to us. You can't hide in there." And she says, "Couldn't I just talk to you?" And she does the Marilyn Monroe breathy, sexy thing automatically. Because again, the only thing she has <laughs> against the cops, you know, against authority, against all this, she has one thing that she can do. And it's suddenly so pitiful. It's so pitiful. So yes, that kind of, you know, that, that kind of awareness of the harshness of the world and refusing, because you're so right. So many of them are shot in California. This is partly because a lot of what film noir derives from one of the big influences anyways is the pulp fiction of writers like dashiell hammett and raymond chandler and dashiell hammett sets the maltese falcon hugely influential novel um in san francisco and dashiell hammett's territory is los angeles where first character philip marlowe so they make the weird the weird combination because you'd have thought new york city and some of them are set in new york but far more are in california so the weirdness of yes these sunny gorgeous supposedly idyllic places being these evil dreadful grim labyrinthian cities that of of all sorts of layers of horror up and down the the class scale it, it in fact if anything it adds it adds to the the kind of feeling of almost cosmic terror <laughs> of, but it also nor has it also lent a sense of adventure to Los Angeles, too, because this mm. is when people are migrating west. The Brooklyn mm. Dodgers go to L.A., mm. the New York Giants go to San Francisco, right? A mm. lot of East Coast people are looking to California, mm. and you know California's sunny and California, oh, but mm. here is the dark underbelly, the thing yes. that you, you're not supposed to know about, but we're going to let you in on this esoteric secret about this wonderful place. You know, and just the last comment on this because we have to mm. move on here okay um the last comment uh just to tie it back to naked city mm -hmm. i feel like there's a the, the the last line in naked city which is probably the most famous of all mm -hmm. um to me was always almost like the encapsulation of everything that film noir is right because the final i think i'm pretty sure it's the final words mm -hmm. of the naked city was uh there are eight million stories in the naked city and this has been one of them Right. You know, and, and isn't that the whole idea of film noir, that these are the stories that exist every single day? This is the dark side that we that that we that we know is there that we don't see. And we're mm -hmm. shining a light on it. And we're I think that's very nicely put. Yes. The sense of the pervasiveness of this experience that most people people don't want to acknowledge in America. And the, certainly the movie, the Hollywood movies do not want to acknowledge. That's what, again, what the consistent marveling over. It's amazing that these movies got made and they're getting made at a time of the blacklist, which is, you know, a harrowing time for anyone on the left. Many people involved in making film noir were lefties. John Huston was, Sterling Hayden was, just relating to Asphalt Jungle. And at this time of absolute paranoia, when at any moment you can be accused of, of being a commie, um, you can't work anymore. It's just a nightmare time of, 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 uh, you know, completely unconstitutional <laughs> um, investigations of, of Americans, but it's all constant. So much of it is winds up being concentrated on Hollywood um, employees, workers, um, that that's going on at the same time. Um, this, again, this, this kind of incredible sense of, 
of darkness even while the blinding sun is shining. I mean, it's not like you never get that you never get light or sun. You do, but it's always harsh. In film noir, they'll always take the filters off so you can see, you know, the glare, the horrible glare on the asphalt. <laughs> that, that, that's the LA of film noir. And this gets taken to its, uh, to its, I guess you could say to its extreme expression uh, with Blue Velvet, David Lynch's mm-hmm. Blue Velvet, which plays on all of those same themes. He's, of mm-hmm. course, grows up on a lot of these films. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are tremendous influence on David Lynch, who is, mm-hmm. of course, a tremendous influence on many filmmakers today and certainly yeah. someone that we're all familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. All right. Um, give me your last. Uh, well, what are we on? Number four. Oh number God, four. We're going to have to hurry. <laughs> I know. I know. No, so, give me number four. Quickly, man with a movie camera. Yeah awful because we could say a million things about it but we're just being concise you know man with a movie camera can stand for the soviet montage uh filmmakers um who were you know coming right out of the russian revolution and trying to come up with what revolutionary cinema could be often people will pick sergey eisenstein you know either october 10 days that took the world or battleship potemkin those are the more usually more famous films and more directly related in some way to the Russian revolution. Um, but I picked Vertov again, in part from my teaching experience that, that, that students found in, in, invariably found man with a movie camera, much more compulsively watchable. It's the edit, the wild tour de force um, experimental editing that's going on a pace that seemed to a number of critics who saw the film back at way back in 1929 just thought thought it was insane. I mean, they could hardly cope with the pace he was setting at certain points and how wild uh, um, the effect was. But now it looks it looks about right. I mean, we're we're used to. I mean, believe me, it's much more inventive than that. But we're used to the kind of pace that Vertov is set, setting in the se- especially in the second half of the film. Vertov is arguably the most revolutionary of the famous montage filmmakers. Um, he certainly thought he was. <laughs> he scorned Eisenstein. He thought Eisenstein was completely mired in bourgeois theatrical and literary um, traditions of narrative. He wanted no part of that. He didn't want to do fiction narrative filmmaking at all. Documentary was going to be the new basis for film. Um, and he had radical ideas about documentary so that many people watching I Man with a Movie Camera are going to be like, wow, this is a documentary. Um, it very much comes off or, or resembles other uh, a kind of subgenre within documentary that was popular at the time um, called the City Symphony, usually a day in the life of, this, of a city. Um, but he's doing something much more radical even with that subgenre. For one thing, it's three cities. So it's, I think, Kiev, Odessa, and I always forget if it's Moscow or what the third is. Because he's trying to create a Soviet, a revolutionary Soviet kind of super city. Uh, that that's what it's what a version of what they're living in, but also kind of what they're heading towards very futuristic um, in its, in its imaginary. Um, how much more should I go on about this? Actually, you're an area, this is an area of expertise for you. So maybe point well, me in a I, direction. I, since we're, since we're running up against the clock, I would simply yeah. say that the film, the film is probably one of the most important films that you mm. could see if you want to understand the Russian avant-garde art movement in total, because mm. it touches on various aspects of constructivism, but it also touches on suprematism and some of the painting and things mm. that led up to that period. It touches on, as you mentioned, uh, some of the early the, the early period of editing and things like that. But it also touches on some cultural issues. And I would simply point out a couple. Number one, that Ziga Vertov is a pseudonym. Uh, his last name was 
was Kaufman. He was Jewish. He was from Odessa, I believe, as w which was the center of Jewish uh, culture in the Soviet Union. That's where my family comes from. Mm -hmm. And uh, it centers a lot of uh, cultural issues without ever overtly naming them because of the revolutionary sort of ideology of it. So what you find is you have everything from women nursing to mm -hmm. cows being milked to, you know what I mean? I, I mean, I, I don't even want to get into all of the different imagery, mm -hmm. you know, animals and all kinds of different things, right? But it all comes back to some of these same principles about, yeah. about space, about the use of space, about mm -hmm. how shapes fit in relation to other shapes in space. You see cars coming from different directions mm -hmm. at intersections and so forth. So it's about movement. It's about space. It's about working people. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's workers. You don't mm -hmm. really see much beyond working mm -hmm. people throughout mm -hmm. the film. I mean, what else is there to say? I think it's probably along, as you said, along with um, uh, Potemkin, maybe Strike, I would say is probably mm -hmm. another one of those that's mm -hmm. probably a must, a must see. Dovzhenko's Earth those are probably the uh, early uh, Soviet avant-garde mm. films that everyone has to see. And then, mm. you know, I mean, of course, Ivan the Terrible the next day. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. Um, okay. Last film, number five. Finish it out. Bring it some, give me something contemporary, as if I don't know what you're going to say. Yeah, <laughs> give me something contemporary. Um, I almost went for Parasite, but that's too obvious because that was the big wow for most leftists in the last few years. Um, I went for Baccarat, which um, um, is a film, it's a Brazilian film. Um, that's, how do we even describe it? It's a real, it's a real, it's a, it's a kind of lurid genre, drawing on multiple genre kind of wow of a film that did, that did hugely well in Brazil and then, and then crossed over in a very, very big way. Um, it draws on the Western, it draws on sci-fi, it draws on action film. It's basically about a, a small town in a very rural area of Northeastern Brazil, which is significant. Um, because it's a it's a it's a it's an area that tends to be very very tough kind of scrubby looking landscape impoverished rural and small town it's the kind of neglected and perpetually underserved financial economically area of Brazil it's where the filmmakers come from and oh shoot I meant to write down their names I'm gonna forget their names clever eh, clever Mendonca Fio is the is the main I think creative force um, in the film. It, it resembles his other works. Um, he comes from there, um, and he he explicitly said in an interview, "We want we come from this area of Brazil. This is the area where maids who are going to go serve the rich, you know, and that's they're going to be employed by the rich in Sao Paulo. They come from here." Um, and we come from here. So we wanted our people to be the heroes for once. The basic plot, and it's very basic, is just it's a it's a town that's suddenly mysteriously under attack, but they don't quite know what from for a while. There's all sorts of mysterious things happening. There's a kind of UFO looking, what turns out to be a drone surveilling them. Um, suddenly their dis their town is disappearing from satellite maps. Um, they don't know what the force is. That seems to be coming at them, and of course the you know the the implications about colonialism are pretty damn pretty damn clear. Um, but finally, what manifests in human form is a group of it's a co combined European, Australian, and American figures who are coming together and talking very much in terms of a, another film, um, you know, that's been made many times, the most most dangerous game. There seems to be some sort of plan, perhaps, to start hunting locals um, for sport. 
Um, sorry, it's a spoiler, but I don't know how else to wrap, how else to convey the quality of the film. There's many other aspects of that are where you're trying to puzzle out what's, how is this town under threat? But ultimately, of course, once they realize what the situation is, they're going to have to turn this around and fight back. And it's among the most satisfying bloodbath films, I'll just tell you, that I've ever seen in my life. And it's just loaded with a kind of necessary <laughs> cleansing violence that you find yourself totally delighting in, even if you don't usually like horror or action film. There's uh, several, I think, critical aspects to note mm -hmm. about this film. Number one is that this was made in Brazil mm -hmm. in the era of Bolsonaro. Mm -hmm. This is an anti-fascist film. Mm -hmm. This is an, I would say, just almost explicitly an anti-fascist film and, as you noted, anti-colonial film. Mm -hmm. And those two issues are, of course, intimately intertwined in mm -hmm. Brazil because, of course, Bolsonaro represents the ranchers, the landowning class, mm -hmm. and uh, the base of the, you know, the Workers' Party is in the north, in the northeast. That's where Lula's base is. That's mm -hmm. where the lower class, working class tends to be. So there is, as you mentioned, there's this mm -hmm. class element. There is, of course, course, the contemporary political context to all mm -hmm. of this. Lula was imprisoned at this time. Bolsonaro rises to power. And all of a sudden, a literal fascist landowning creep is running mm -hmm. the country. Mm -hmm. And then you have this absolutely beautiful film that I think really it captures the the the, the nature of uh, a sort of an anti-fascist sensibility in Brazil in, in 2019, I think, better than anything ever could have. Uh, yes, and it's very explicit in that. You'll recognize Udo Kier. <laughs> He's playing the German who heads the team, the kind of cold-eyed German, to make it as explicit as possible, um, the kind of fascist element um, that is that has arrived. And, you know, it's it's also a, f a film that is deliberately hearkening back to a movement called Cinema Novo that begins at the very end of the 50s and moves through the 60s and 70s. That again, that you know, it has some similarities. It's it's partly inspired by, for example, Italian neorealism, but it's pushing toward um, a much more radically political, um, you know, cinema of liberation. And a lot of films move. A lot of the they're also resisting the the heavy, heavy influence of Hollywood in Brazilian filmmaking. Um, so Cinema Novo is very, often moves to areas just like you know the one where this film is set to kind of explore, you know, completely unexamined, um, you know, rural populations, you know, different, um, you know, dialects, different folk traditions, etc. in their film. So it's the film is clearly evoking this longer, you know, heavily leftist political, political um, um, filmmaking tradition. Absolutely. Well, we are well over the time. We're going to yeah. have to leave it there. I okay. highly recommend all of those films. Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, Film Suck is the podcast. Find mm -hmm. that on Patreon. The column, of course, in Jacobin, mm -hmm. always a must read. Eileen oh. Jones, Eileen15 Jones on Twitter. Eileen, thanks so much for chatting with us today. Thank you, Eric. It's been wonderful. I've enjoyed it a little bit. Listeners, much. viewers, listeners, thank you as always for your continued support. And we will chat again real soon.